Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I should preface my message by saying that uh, you might think this gospel was chosen for today as preparation for our celebration of Pentecost this Sunday. Uh, in fact, this is the gospel for Trinity Sunday the following week and was chosen today to begin preparation for that celebration. The themes of Trinity Sunday will form my message this morning. Dear friends in Christ, George MacDonald was a Scotsman and a Christian and an author. He lived from 1824 until 1905. C.S. Lewis was only six years old when MacDonald died, but Lewis would later come to regard MacDonald as his master. In fact, Lewis once said, I fancy I have never written a book in which I did not quote him. In his novel, Robert Falconer, MacDonald tells the story of a young man in search of his lost father. Many regard it as the parable of the prodigal son told in reverse. The boy's mother had died in childbirth and the father had never really recovered from the loss. The father began drinking and very soon abandoned the boy to the care of his own mother, the boy's granny. Now this grandmother was a Christian from a very strict Scots Calvinist background. Growing up, the boy rarely heard about the grace or compassion of God. Only after he went away to school did he begin to realize that God was far different from what he had been taught. The following conversation takes place between the boy, who is now grown up, and the grandmother, whom he still loves. Now, since my Germanic tongue cannot do justice to the beauty of MacDonald's Old Scots dialect, I will read it in my own contemporary English version. God is not like a proud man to take offense, Granny. There is nothing that pleases him like the truth, and there is nothing that displeases him like lying, particularly when it is done to uphold him. He wants no such upholding. Now you, in fact, say things about him that sound frightening to me. What kind of things are they, laddie? asked the old lady with offense beginning to show on her face. Such as when you speak about him as if he was a poor, proud, small-town magistrate full of his own importance and ready to be angry at anybody who didn't show him the respect due to his position, always thinking about his own glory instead of the quiet, mighty, grand, self-forgetting, all-creating, all-upholding, eternal being who took the form of man in Christ Jesus, just that he might be able to bear and be humbled for our sakes. Yes, Granny, think of the face 
of that man of sorrows, who never said a harsh word to a sinful woman or a despised tax collector. Do you think he was thinking about his own glory? And we have no right to say we know God except in the face of Christ Jesus. Whatever's not like Christ is not like God. Trinity Sunday has been described as the celebration of the richness of the being of God, as the occasion of a thankful review of the now completed mystery of salvation, which is the work of the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Yet for some people, this day holds little celebration and even less emotion. They would more likely agree with the author who contrasted this day to the early festivals of the Christian year that commemorate persons and events. Not until relatively late, he writes, were festivals instituted in honor of doctrines. People struggle to find meaning, let alone beauty, in the poetry of the Athanasian creeds majesty co-equal and its uncreateds and its neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance and are relieved when its reading is over for another year. Even Luther Reed speaks of a preface for this day full of involved phraseology and one of the least admirable of all the collects in the church's use. Well, perhaps a text from Matthew and an insight from MacDonald can turn the day back into a celebration, not just of a person, but of the three persons in one, and not just of an event, but of the whole mystery of our salvation. Perhaps the words of Jesus can do that. So how can we know God in the face of Christ Jesus as we see it here in Matthew 28? I would like to suggest three ways. Of course, three ways. Now in this text, we may end up on a mountain, but the text begins by bringing us crashing back down to earth after our sublime heavenly talk of three eternals and of the trinity in person and the unity and substance of the majesty co-equal. And it's not the number three that does it. It's the number 11. The 11 disciples went to Galilee. Eleven disciples. Judas had gone to his own place. And the eleven had hardly survived the death of their master unscathed. Fear, despair, abandonment, cowardice, betrayal. The whole shameful performance of these disciples flashes before our eyes again when we read that eleven disciples went to Galilee. And how do they do this time? Well, 
They worshiped him when they saw him, except for some who were so confused they didn't know what to do. We're three verses away from the end of the whole story, and still Matthew has to say, but some. Now what happens next is truly amazing. And if we could get ourselves to take these words seriously, to hear what they're saying, I don't think we would be able to believe them. Jesus comes to them. Like a waiting father who can wait no more to embrace his faltering prodigal sons, Jesus comes to them the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, the one begotten of the Father before all ages, despised by men but victorious over death and grave, he comes to them. And there can be only one reason. He loves them. You, O Lord, will arise and have compassion on Zion. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What aspect or quality or measure of the compassion of our God is not visible here as Jesus comes to his disciples? Whenever you wonder how or where or in what condition to find a God who justifies or accepts sinners, Luther writes, then you must know that there is no other God than this man, Christ Jesus. Take hold of him, cling to him with all your heart, and spurn all speculation about the divine majesty. I know from experience what I'm talking about. When it comes to the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, and eternal salvation, then you must disabuse your mind completely of all speculation and investigation into the majesty of God, and you must pay attention only to this man. When you do this, you will see the love, the goodness, and the sweetness of God. In the compassion of our Lord Jesus, we know God. So Jesus comes to them and he speaks. We may think that the Great Commission is all about us disciples speaking, but notice that in the text, no disciple utters a word. And for the sake of letting Matthew tell us the story, we must remember that these are the first words the disciples have heard from their risen Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, this Jesus who comes to them declares. More authority than the tempter could offer him, authority equal to his Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, all authority is now his. What will this omnipotent Lord say to these failures? What will he do 
to these had-been disciples who denied him before men. He will make real in their lives what his death and resurrection have accomplished for them. He will make them his own again and more than ever before in ways never imagined. His words, as R.T. France notes, will leave their failure far behind, swallowed up in the much greater reality of the mission to which they are now called. Rather than punish his disciples, deny them, banish them to the outer darkness, he commissions them with a part of his own mission. He draws them into his own apostleship, sending them out as the Father sent him. And before you can begin to ask, but me, how can I do this? I can't even make a decent disciple out of myself. How can I possibly make disciples of all nations? Before you can even begin to ask, he answers your question. All authority is mine. I and the Father and the Spirit are one. There is only one name into which you are to baptize and to be baptized. There is only one name by which humanity will be saved. At my name every knee shall bow. All authority is mine. My words, the things that I have commanded you, are not just sounds in the air or marks on the page. My words make things live, make things whole, make things out of nothing. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Who can withstand you? In and through this commission, our Lord Jesus makes of those who were no people his people. He shows that salvation truly comes from the Lord, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In the commission of our Lord Jesus, we know God. Well, at this point, you may very well be wondering whether that compassion will someday, if it hasn't already, run out. Or that commission, if it hasn't already, someday expire. I can see why there may be reason for concern here. From eternity, God has loved us and chosen us to be his own. So much did he love us that he gave his own word and this word became flesh and lived among us, shared our life, suffered our death. This word overcame the power of death, and the grave could not silence him. This word speaks to us his own forgiveness and gives us his own name. He has promised that nothing can snatch us out of his hand nor separate us from his love. I can see why you might have reason for doubt about all this. So, the Most High, all-powerful, all-good Lord promises to be with us always. Which part of this final promise of our Lord could not be a sermon by itself? 
the fact that this one has linked himself to us by putting us together in one sentence should already leave us in silent rapture. That he is with us all the time is more than we can take in all at once. It's only when we begin to break down this promise into manageable pieces that we see its power. Yes, Lord, you are with me now. I need not be afraid. Now I see, Lord, that you have been with me all along. You were even with me when that happened. You brought me safely through it. Lord, I cannot know tomorrow. How can you trust anything I say to you today? Oh, but you do know what tomorrow will bring, and you will be there with me. That's all that matters. But especially for the reader of Matthew, there's something more, something that gives to the other parts of this promise their meaning. I will be with you. In this promise of our Lord, in his commitment to us, his people, we know God. It was not by chance, but it wasn't completely by my design either, that the three subheadings of this message should all begin with co. Compassion, commission, commitment. What we see throughout these closing verses in Matthew is the picture the face, the incarnation of the God who is with us and wants always to be with us and us to be with him, who delights in his people and fills us with joy by bringing us into his presence. God with us. Yes, this is our Emmanuel. God with us to save. God with us to guide and protect God with us to accomplish in us and through us his own good will. And in this final promise, our Lord assures us that he will be our Emmanuel all the time until the end of the age. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. We rise from